This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, we unpack the carnage from the first test in Adelaide. Discuss the player entitlement that's rearing its ugly head again in the NBA. Who's been naughty and nice this Christmas? And Lamar Jackson only just beats the Browns? Let's do it. Welcome everyone to a very special Christmas sport bloke this week. As we do at the top every week, Stewie, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, what caught my attention this week was a tweet from a guy named Joshua Kay outlining the lowest scores at Adelaide Oval, starting with the Gold Coast Suns, then the Western Bulldogs, Essendon, Adelaide, Fremantle, the Crows again, North Melbourne, and India. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's more about that in our feature, though. Sticking with cricket, the other thing that caught my attention was something I saw on Facebook about the Taylors, Liam, Steve, and Luke, who took all 20 wickets for Joondalup Kinross Cricket Club in the WA Northern Suburbs Community Cricket Association J-grade match. Oh, jeez, it goes that far. <laughs> yep. Against Marmion Cricket Club, which they won by nine wickets. Liam took 10 for 39, Steve 9 for 82, and Luke 1 for 17. Only one other bowler actually bowled four overs in the match for Joondalup Kinross, but still not an easy thing to do. And on a sadder, more personal note from the game, I note there was a guy with the same surname as me for Marmion who was bowled out for a duck in both innings, so oh dear. not great. How about yourself, mate? Well, Shui, I know that I don't tend to follow preseason very closely and, uh, you know, I think it's, well, it's not a waste of time. It is important. But as a spectator, I'm not all that interested. Watch it. But, geez, I tell you what, on SportsCenter last night, there were some very tasty jams in the NBA. So very much champing at the bit for that season to start. The highlights have already started cracking. What did you miss, mate? Well, being a work day, I didn't really get to see every single ball of day one from the first test on Friday, but I've managed to make up for that with highlights and reports and all of that. So I did get to see the start of the match a little bit, but uh, obviously focus more on day two and day three, which we will talk about very soon. Yeah, well, Stewie, on that note, I'm, I'm similar, but for me, it was the very start of day three and I didn't miss much at all. It was only about half an hour, but that was enough for the carnage to ensue. So definitely looking forward to talking about that very shortly. But first things first, let's get into the news roundup. Yeah, news roundup time, Nathan. I believe we're starting with the WNBL. Yes, Stewie. Well, the Southside Flyers are champions of the WNBL once again, the first time since 2012 when they were then the Dandenong Rangers. After a 55-day shortened season, it's been carnival atmosphere in the WNBL. The Flyers beat Townsville 99-82. to Leilani Mitchell, the pick of the players, 31 points, one shy of Renee Camino's 2008 record for points in a championship game. She was 9 of 13, getting her the Rachel Spawn medal. Liz Cambridge chimed in with 14 points in a foul-troubled, riddled 15 minutes. And unfortunately for Townsville, Shyla Hill shot 4 for 18. So not a great game for her, but she's still very young and still a lot of promise ahead for her. Yeah, she probably picked the worst possible game to have such a stinker from the field. And for the Flyers, they nearly had a 50-40-90. They shot the ball that well. As a team, yeah, very impressive. Very impressive. Phenomenal. Sticking with basketball, Stewie, in a major shock to anyone that's familiar with college hoops, the Kentucky Wildcats men's team, who are an absolute powerhouse, are 1-5 and five for the first time since the 1926-27 season after losing to the North Carolina Tar Heels over the weekend. Four Wildcats players, including three of their starters, fouled out as Kentucky were in foul trouble for most of the game. And indeed, there was a bit of controversy there. I saw a lot of whinging on the Twitterverse about the umpiring, but I watched the highlights. It didn't look like there were too many that were average. I mean, you're going to get the odd bad foul call in a game. It just happens. But unfortunately for uh, Kentucky, it just meant that three of their starters ended up on the bench, which is not where they want to be. Quite remarkable in what will continue to be a very remarkable college basketball season. Mm -hmm. 
And then finally, sticking with basketball, new Charlotte Hornet and many would say overpaid swingman Gordon Haywood has once again proved the masses right, succumbing to an avulsion fracture in the fifth metacarpal on his shooting hand. For those not in the know, and I certainly wasn't prior to reading about this, an avulsion fracture is the tendinal ligament that pulls off a piece of the bone, so it's no doubt very painful. He's listed as day-to-day, but it looks like we won't be seeing him for quite some time. Maybe the first game of the season, but I would suggest likely a little bit later. He's had a wretched run ever since that horrible broken tibia in his first game with Boston, just six minutes into it, if I'm not mistaken. And we, along with almost everyone covering the NBA, said this was an overpay from the very beginning, but he continues to be made of glass. It sounds really bad, an avulsion fracture, but from what I've read, it's actually not as bad as it sounds. So this is the sort of thing that, yeah, he is legitimately day-to-day. Okay. I don't think we'll see him maybe for the first few games of the regular season, but yeah, you still don't want this. I mean, he's just signed his massive contract. You just want to get on with things. A lot of money invested. Speaking of money being invested in things, the AFL has some scheduling news, Stewie. Yeah, the AFL's announced their round one fixture for the 2021 season. We've got the traditional Richmond Carlton at the MCG kicking things off on the Thursday night. Collingwood and the Bulldogs playing at the G on Friday night. Then we've got Melbourne and Frio at the G, Essendon and Hawthorne at Marvel Stadium, and Brisbane and Sydney at the Gabba for the Saturday fixtures. On Sunday, North Melbourne take on Port at Marvel, GWS and St Kilda at the Giant Stadium, and the Battle of the Coasts with West and Gold playing each other at Optus Stadium. What are your thoughts, Nate? Oh, yes, very interesting. Well, obviously, great to see footy back at the G after a very long layoff since round one. I think probably the pick of the games for me is Collingwood and the Dogs, given the Trelaw move. I think that could be quite an interesting one. Couldn't agree more. I will say, though, as a general rule, I think this is one of the worst rounds of footy I've seen. Like You've got, obviously, the Collingwood Bulldogs game's a great storyline. West Coast and Gold Coast should be good after the round, I think it was round two or round three game and last season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, rail back, exactly. Richmond-Carlton should be okay, but I can't find any other game in there that I'm amped for, which is oh, really I, surprising. I think Sydney-Brisbane could be interesting. The, the reason I say that, though, is it looks like so many of these games are between premiership contenders and teams expected to either be in the bottom 10 or fighting a little bit for that eight yeah, spot. Kind of like brink. with, you know, yeah, yeah kind of like that Brisbane-Sydney is a really good example. You'd expect Brisbane to be right up there for the flag. Yep. Sydney, you know, could be around that seven or eight spot if all goes well. So, well, we should be improved with Buddy back. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not particularly excited about many of these games, but, I mean, look, footy back, that's the main thing. Yes, indeed, and back at the G too. And then we move on to some good news, finally, for Willie Rioli. After seemingly decades on the sideline, he's finally been allowed <laughs> to have his first hearing with the AFL Anti-Doping Tribunal via video link, which was uh, from the Northern Territory, I believe. I think he's back up in the Tiwi Islands. The hearing was fair, according to Rioli's father, which is a good start. I mean, I'm mm. still not confident that we'll see him this season. He'll turn 26 in the middle of next season. So I guess the question is what it would mean if he received that same two-year penalty that Shana Jack received when hers was halved recently, obviously. I'm not saying that they're in the same offense sort of category, but I worry that he's going to get two years backdated, which would kind of yeah, put him towards that 27-year-old mark, which is, I mean, it's still young, but Oh, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not good for kind of that period entering your prime or around your prime. But hey, you do the crime, you do the time. Mm, yeah, it'll be interesting to have a look at the the other precedents around that and see if that not that there's really a precedent of somebody pouring Gatorade into their pee sample, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, yes, interesting indeed. times ahead. And there's also some big news surrounding Richmond Sydney Stack, but we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. We sure will. And so we'll finish off with some golf faith. Yeah, some interesting news for those that may have been paying attention. Tiger Woods has a mini-me. 
And it's in the form of his son, Charlie Woods, who at only 11 is able to replicate his father's swing perfectly and has been playing absolutely spectacularly well at the PNC Championship in Orlando. I hate this kid, seriously. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, look, honestly, he, he has one of the most beautiful swings I've ever seen and the kid is 11. It's, yep. it's just not fair. I it's mean, scary. But you know what? Good on him. Like Tigers obviously played a huge part in, in his upbringing. It's something that they've found that they obviously love doing together. And I'll tell you what, from what I've seen, Charlie has every bit of the swagger that Tiger has. He actually left a, a note in one of the bunkers. I think it was might have been Dustin Johnson or one of, one of the, the top players in the world. And he's actually leaving a note in the bunker. <laughs> talking smack to him you can't it's, help but wonder that maybe tiger set that up but it's still it's still well, a classic story i mean i'd believe that either way but yeah it's fantastic yeah, it's phenomenal come on you blokes you know more than just sport now sure i have been sitting on this one for a couple of weeks but obviously it's very appropriate for our episode this week adelaide family the mccormicks came home to find a juvenile koala now named daphne sitting in their christmas tree it had tried to eat the leaves, but stopped when it realised they were plastic. And somehow they reckon it crawled in the door when it was left open and it was their home alone for at least three hours. When Amanda McCormick called the Adelaide and Hills Koala Rescue, they didn't actually believe her and thought that it was a prank call. But when they did finally come, it didn't want to leave. <laughs> the koala was grasping tightly to the tree and they finally managed to get it out. Now, you'll love this, Stewie. It had the 16-year-old daughter of the family, Taylor's TikTok, blowing up. Oh, I love TikTok. My favourite, <laughs> what is it? A platform? I don't oh, know. Yes. Rubbish. Uh, but a nice little Christmas story there in the news that was non-sports related. So to Daphne the koala, I say... It's just not cricket. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week belongs to Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson. During the Ravens match against, of all teams, the Browns... Oh, so appropriate. Jackson... <laughs> Jackson headed back to the locker room mid-game, supposedly suffering from cramps and to get an IV drip. Now, I don't know about you, Nate, but I think we've all done the crap walk before. That was well and truly a crap walk. <laughs> well, I'll be honest, mate. I don't remember doing it. No, I don't remember. I might have done it as a kid. But no. You're a very lucky man if you haven't. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> So obviously this brings up memories of the Paul Pierce incident in the 2008 finals against the Lakers when he was carried off, apparently overcome with cramps, only revealed earlier this year that he'd accidentally soiled himself. But Jackson was very quick to say he hadn't followed in Pierce's footsteps, which is true. I mean, it was a different toilet for starters. Yeah, and it wasn't finals. Yeah, yep. It wasn't final, that's true. But as usual, there were some absolute belters from the Twitterverse, including the following, oh, it looks like he's going for two. <laughs> Lamar oh. Jackson taking on the Browns. Oh, uh, yes. Load management works. <laughs> the Browns had to respect Jackson's runs. Ooh. And I even saw a tweet from a Taylor Rook saying, who in the post game is going to ask Lamar if he was pooping? <laughs> Which is, you know, simple, but it works well. But uh, amazingly, this has had more coverage than the actual game itself, which the Ravens won 47 to 42. Oh, absolute so, belter. So Justin Tucker nailed a 55-yard field goal with two seconds left to give the Ravens a three-point lead and a multilateral play from the Browns. I think there was about seven lateral passes before they basically ended up back in their own end zone for a safety and the final score. But even more nuts was that the safety actually saw the Ravens cover the spread, which apparently cost some bookmakers millions. Wow. And the other thing, of course, is a very storied history between the two teams because the old Cleveland Browns left and relocated to Baltimore where they became the Ravens. And then the league 
allowed for a new team, which had the old name, the Cleveland Browns, to come back in as well. So they have a very inexplicably linked history, and no doubt this is a very interesting chapter in it. A couple of other ones, Shuri. Uh, Matty Renshaw in India and Timmy Payne, wasn't he at the Ashes? Didn't he follow yeah, through yeah. at the Ashes as well? He definitely wet himself. I don't know if he pooped, but I think oh, okay. he might have done. Which, but he was he was very candid about it. I mean, there's a yeah, chance I remember the great, the game. The great cricketer blokes were talking about how just everyone seems to have forgotten about that fairly recently, actually. So yeah, look, I respect that. That is a guy who wants to win a game of cricket more than anything in the world. Yeah, yeah, and you know, to be able to stand up and say, "Yep, I did that." You know, fair play to him. Captain's knock. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so for a guy crab walking for a poop, overshadowing an 89-point thriller, all I can say is, shit. <laughs> I mean, bloody hell. <laughs> bloody hell. So, Stewie, a couple of quick notes in the cricket world before we get into that incredible first test between India and Australia. Yeah, a couple of massive things to celebrate. So firstly, we need to take a minute to talk about the intentions of the American Cricket Enterprises team. They've all but locked in a 2022 T20 tournament in a place called Grand Prairie. It's about 15 minutes from the centre of Dallas. And what they've done Mm. is they've taken an unused baseball stadium and they're going to be creating an 8,000-person capacity for the Texas Major League Cricket franchise to launch in 2022. It's a fantastic initiative. It's also going to be used as a base for the American national cricket team. And they're planning on bringing a T20 World Cup to the US by 2031, which is magnificent. Yeah, very, very exciting for world cricket. Now, America's obviously got a ton of great athletes and they've obviously got a fair few folk of subcontinent descent. So they have heaps of people to pick from. Oh yeah, definitely. They do have some work to do though. They were bowled out by Nepal in February for just 35 in an ODI. So... You know, still a bit to go, but uh, no, really, really great to see that coming out of America. Nepal have been okay, though. They've upset some decent teams, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, but good on them. You've got to start from the bottom, don't you? Exactly. And then just quickly tonight, Dan Christian, 15-ball half-century for the Sydney Sixers against the Adelaide Strikers. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Sure he was, was two off two as well. Yeah, well, you need a couple of ciders, don't you, Stewie? Yeah, but that means he's taken 48 off the next 13, four fours and five sixes. And the sixes actually took 127 off the second 10 overs, which is just brilliant. Very impressive. And in reply, pretty nasty collapse for the strikers. They lost five for 29 off 45 balls. So that was pretty crazy. Yes, Joey, but collapses are becoming an all too familiar trend in the BBL. Hopefully it doesn't continue for too long. Mm, yeah, very, very true. We did actually see another really cool thing last night, though, the debut of Nur Ahmad for the Renegades against the Hurricanes yesterday. He took one for 27 off his four overs. Pretty tidy, right? Yeah, getting a bit of spin too. The kid's 15. Yeah. Like, far out. I was trying to figure out how to make girls like my pimply face at 15, and this kid's got rid of (laughs) Pete Hanscom, and he should have had Ben McDermott as well. Like, wowzers. This is just another really, really great part of the Afghani cricket future. Yes, indeed. Yeah, leaps and bounds. It's great. Anyway, on to the stuff we wanted to talk about, the first test. Now, I initially thought this was a bad toss to lose, but geez, it's funny how things work out sometimes. Well, I think you're right. I think it was a bad toss to lose, but for India, it was a bad match to lose. (laughs) So we'll Mm. go through day by day with some notes and talking points, I guess. And I didn't get to see very much at all, unfortunately, of day one, but I did listen to the vast majority on the radio. Mitch Stark claimed a wicket of Shaw in the second ball of the match and created all sorts of opportunities early, as did Cummins, who was looking pretty good. 
Yeah, it was actually the 31st time that Mitch Stark had picked up a wicket within the first 10 balls of a test innings, which is absolutely amazing. Oh, it's so good to get off to those good starts. And he's so good in those day-night tests too, as he continued to be. Pujara put a prize on his wicket as usual, but he batted at a ridiculously slow rate. He scored his first boundary when he was 31 off 147, and he didn't last much longer out for 43 off 159. There was a terrible run out between Coley and Rahani. Only the second time ever that Coley's been run out in tests. The last time, funnily enough, was at Adelaide Oval as well, eight years ago. And after that, gee, things really went pear-shaped for the Indians. Rahani was gone, LBW, not much later. They were six for 233 at stumps. And I reckon probably a nose ahead, scoring three for 126 in that final session. If that run out hadn't happened, they might not have even lost a wicket in that final session. Yeah, look, it's it's very easy to, to say that could have happened. I mean... <laughs> They certainly picked up the run rate fairly quickly. Coley was absolutely set. He was looking like he was on for a really, really big score. But I have to say, Nath, it's actually interesting and and a bit refreshing to see you say that India were ahead after day one because everywhere that I had read or everyone that I'd heard speaking actually had Australia ahead at 6 for 233, which I I agree with you. I think, if anything, India were slightly ahead, maybe 55-45, but certainly I had them ahead. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I definitely had them ahead. So a couple of talking points from day one, Stewie. I guess the first one was the overrates, but there was a bit of a delay at the start of the match, which had Shane Warne fuming. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Plastic cover on part of the sight screen, and we're talking like right on the edge of it. The fact that this was even in their line of sight is ridiculous, and it happened at least three times that I saw, which, yeah, just held play up unnecessarily. Eventually somebody came and pulled it off, and that was that, but... uh, yeah, geez, I could see why Warney was getting a bit, a bit frustrated by it, really. I think everyone was. So, And let's hope overrates don't become too much of an issue because they've already been too much of an issue this summer. We don't really want to be talking about them too much. I'll tell you what, though, speaking of things going a little bit slowly, I think India missed a trick in the first two sessions of this. They didn't rotate the strike very well. Now, look, the Aussie bowlers bowled absolutely superbly. You've already mentioned how well Starkey bowled early and, and Cummins and Hazelwood were both bowling that really nice sort of nagging fourth Excellent and fifth stump. Leaf. It was yeah. very, very difficult to get away. But yep. there was just no rotation of strike. And, uh, you know, if you look at that, had they been three for 190 instead of three for 107 after the end of the, the second session, we could have been talking about a very, very different game here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, definitely. Even I mean, if they were three yeah, for yeah. 150, I reckon. Well, it does make a big difference. I mean, look, you give India credit. They had a strategy about being patient. They didn't listen to anything that was going on around them. They just kind of got through the day. But yeah, I, I just think they, they did miss a trick there. They could easily have finished the day at six for 300 or six for 280, which does make a big difference. Now, Stuart, there seems to be a lot of discussion about slips positioning. Now, as I mentioned, I didn't get to watch a hell of a lot. I had to, I watched the extended highlights after the fact, but I had to listen on the radio. Do you agree that the slips Cordon positioning was maybe a little bit too far back. There seemed to be a lot of chances created, particularly in that first session. Yeah, I think they were probably about a metre too far back from what I saw. Um, Definitely there were a couple that maybe would have gone to hands. And look, the thing is with Pujara in particular, he does play with very soft hands. So if anything, you probably do need to actually bring those slips in a little bit further because, yeah, I mean, I think it was the second ball that he faced. He edges one and it finishes about, I don't know, what, 30 centimetres short? Probably not even that. So could very easily have been talking about two for none. Now, speaking of Pajara, he's uh, he features in my last talking point from day one, which was about reviews. So he clearly inside-edged one on to his pad offline, and the umpire Bruce Oxenford didn't put up his finger, even though it seemed like Pajara actually started to walk. 
of course, Australia did review it and it did end up being out. Bruce Oxenford not only didn't have a great day, but he did not have a great test. But on that first day, he removed a short run, which was clearly legal, and Collie was pissed. Warney didn't hold back in the com box either on that one. I mean, it wasn't even close. This is the sort of thing you're just being pedantic for the sake of being pedantic. If you if you think it might be a short run, I don't see why you can't go up to the third umpire for that. Just have a little chat in your Agreed. ear yep. in between in be, you know in between the yeah the bowler going back to his to his mark. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. But yep, I agree. Yeah, 100%. but I can certainly understand Collie's frustration there. I mean, it, it it there was it wasn't even close. I mean, we're talking the bat was a good probably I don't know three four inches over the the line. So and he wasn't even standing square on. Well, that's the problem. He was about he had the wrong angle. He's about three or four metres back. So, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I just don't understand. Now, speaking of Coley, Lyon had him out 16 glove, but we never challenged. And he ended up being run out by Cummins and Stuck, but he was really run out by Rahani on 74, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> they had really been controlling the night session for the most part of that stage too. Sorry. And then finally, Rahani challenged a plum LBW by Starkey, which Mark War referred to as the outest out of all time, which I found quite funny. Mm, yeah, that was that was fair. Look, the the Coley one was interesting. I mean, it was a very very tiny glove, and I, look, ordinarily you probably would review that, but I think if I remember correctly, we just burned one not that long before on a an iffy sort of LBW appeal. So I can understand why they may be held back, and obviously it's frustrating when you see a guy who should be out for sixteen go on and you know make a much higher score. But you know that's that's the breaks in cricket sometimes. And there was a really interesting discussion between Ricky Ponting and uh, Australian media personality Peter Layler as to whether or not that was a howler of a challenge or not. I mean, it definitely wasn't a howler. And Ponting said, you know, they're there for the howlers. That was a feather touch. You can understand why they didn't challenge that one. I don't think that was a major faux pas. No, not at all. Moving on to day two, just as Starkey got an early one on day one, Cummins got Ashwin early on day two. India were all out for 244, so they only managed 11 runs in the restart for their final four wickets. Burns was out for eight LBW to a Boomer Yorker. Now, that's obviously an interesting talking point because of all the discussion around Burns. Labashane was given several chances. He was dropped on the boundary by Boomerad. And when Ashwin got Smith cheaply, Australia were in a spot of bother. So here's here's some fall of wickets, Stewie. Three for 45, four for 65, five for 79. Okay, granted, Green was caught on a magnificent Coley catch. And it's funny, he was dropping absolute sitters in the T20s and then taking that absolute screamer. But Australia were looking pretty shaky there in the middle, weren't they? Oh, in- incredibly. And I'll tell you what, you also, uh, you didn't mention the one that Labashane edged basically right between keeper and first slip off. I think it was might've even been his first ball, but very, very early in his innings as well. Oh, so he had several chances. Yeah. He really did. So yeah, I, I think if we just go back a, a quick second though, to the, the Indian wickets at the end, really, really crucial for the Aussies. If you look back to the 2019 series, which India won 2-1, India had a lot of runs from Richard Punt in every innings. He made at least 25 in all seven of his knocks from number seven, including a 159 in the fourth test. Very handy. And and Jardasia had an 81 batting at eight as well, which obviously he's not a number eight batsman, but he just well, he's basically an all rounder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we actually ended up taking seven for 56, which was really really crucial to kind of finish that off a little bit quicker than it probably should have been. And it's funny people always talk about the momentum from runouts. That runout from from Coley ends up costing them seven for 56 effectively. So but then I guess if you look at the Aussies, we kind of made it look even harder. We weren't going at under two and over until the end of the 39th over. So we weren't exactly going at a, a great rate. But I will say this, India actually only had one ball in the first nine overs hitting the stumps, which I felt was really, really interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. 
I mean, when you've got Joe Burns who's struggling so much with being bold or out LBW, why would you not pepper the stumps? It just doesn't make sense. Absolutely. I mean, the Aussies looked, yeah, as you said, pretty average bar Tim Payne, who looked like he was on a different pitch. And had it not been for him, probably yeah. would have been all she wrote fairly early. Great captain's knock. But I felt like him and Starkey could have... I was actually watching at that stage. And I felt like him and Starkey could have really had a nice little partnership. But Starkey threw it away. Mm, he, yeah, he really did. I, I remember screaming at the TV. <laughs> it was like, why would you go... You don't need a second there. Like, just go with the one, move on. So Australia were all out 191 in the end, trailing India by 51. And that was not before Bruce Oxenford had an absolute howler once again, giving Lyon out LB when he clearly edged Ashwin onto his pads. And again, Warney teed off on that one, talking about a clear deviation in the commentary box. And then India went out to bat for a quick little period there and they were one for nine at stumps leading by 60. Thank you, Prithvi Shaw. Now, I guess the big talking point for this day was the dropped catches. India had five or six, I reckon. Australia had one when Tim Payne was diving for one that was going to first slip and probably could have been caught fairly easy by Burns, who's pretty good in the slips. Mm, yeah, you're right there. But geez, yeah, the Indians had an absolute shocker of a day in the field. I mean, there was there were so many chances and it just seemed like they got easier and easier. And yeah, I mean, you summed it up really well, as if they're dropping all of these ones, knocking balls over the boundary... Oh, and then Coley takes that screamer to get rid of Cam Green. I mean, unlucky. Yeah, unlucky, just but. bizarre. Now, the other thing I found interesting about this one, Shui, there was a lot of discussion in the com box about whether Australia should have declared early and got injured in a little bit earlier in that night session. But we were still behind by a lot at that stage. I thought it was a crazy discussion. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Absolute rubbish. Like, why would you declare... 120 runs shy when you're struggling as it is you, you get as many as you possibly can okay i get it you want to bowl to india under lights especially the way that we've got guys that can move the ball but it just it made no sense it would have been one of the dumbest declarations in the history of cricket for me and especially Payne was looking really good as you said and as i said he was having a good little partnership with starkey before he threw it away so we probably could have chipped into that margin even more if starkey had just run that single instead of trying for two then we get to the crazy part, day three. Now, my girlfriend and I had to be somewhere, so we couldn't get in front of the telly until about 12.30. I thought, oh, I'll only miss about half an hour. That won't be too bad. I might miss one wicket. Well, holy shit. Yeah, mate, I know you don't mind a sleep in on a Saturday, so <laughs> I sent you that text after the, the fifth after the fifth wicket, and a couple of balls later when Coley got knocked over, I thought, well, geez, we've got to, we've got to make sure you're watching this. I gave you that call, and yeah, you're out and about already. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, we had some very important business to attend to. And like I said, I didn't think I'd miss much, but geez, I missed a lot. Agarwal started day three well with a lovely boundary, but then it went pear-shaped real quick. Boomer the Night Watchman was out early for two when he spooned one to Paddy Cummins. Cummins got Pajara for a duck. Hazelwood got Agarwal for nine on his first ball, then Rahane four balls later. Cam Green took a blinder at Gully, albeit with some juggles to remove Coley for four, as you mentioned. And here we are. India 6 for 19 when we turn up to the pub. I could not believe it. Saha then threw his wicket away to expose the tail even more in dire straits. 7 for 26. Hazelwood had the faintest of faint edges on Snicko to get Ashwin out for a duck, becoming the 18th Aussie to reach 200 test wickets. His final figures for the innings, 5 for 8. India's final figures for the innings, all out 36. Well, kind of all out. There was a retired hurt there. Australia needing 90 to win. Holy shit. Wade came out aggressively. He was in no mood to stick around too long. Looked okay, but he got out in very bizarre circumstances with Saha under the legs backhand run out. That was a cracker, that was. Oh, sure was. 
Although it was a bit undisciplined because he probably could have done it in a safer way, which would have been more likely to lead to success. But hey, anyway, he got him out. Well, it'll probably be the last test he plays in anyway, so whatever. <laughs> uh, and then Burns copped a tough one from Boomer on his elbow, a shade under 20 balls into his innings, but it didn't phase him. He played a beautiful pull shot not too long after that and then started to look very good, playing several other good shots. Bringing up the winning runs with a six, helped over the rope by Boomer on the boundary, of course, on theme. He finished on 51 not out, and Australia incredibly won by eight wickets, only the second time in a day-night test that the team was trailing after the first innings had a win. Yeah, I must say, how how fitting was it that Boomer parried one over the boundary rope yeah. to uh, to finish it off? Holy shit! I mean, this has to go down as one of the darkest days in Indian cricket history. Like, yeah, it's phenomenal. To illustrate this carnage a little bit more, so India lost four for none across thirty-one balls at one stage. Josh Hazelwood was five for three off twenty-five deliveries, and his five for eight was the most economical five-wicket haul by an Aussie in seventy-three years. Oh, incredible! The line and length was absolutely superb. It was. You know, the last time a team scored fewer runs in an innings than India did, Elvis Presley hadn't released a song. <laughs> Uh, there you Not go. Not a single one. I did see a hilarious follow-up to that, though, with someone posting, no to India, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. <laughs> yep. That is brilliant. But the most damning stat, India became the first side in the history of Test cricket without a single double-figure score on their score sheet. Jeez. Now, it is worth noting that in 1924, England bowled South Africa out for 30 with 11 extras. So, obviously, that wasn't actually a batsman making double figures, but... They still had that one double-figure score on their scorecard. But, yeah, absolutely insane. Carnage. Oh, ridiculous. And the interesting yeah. stats, Stewie, Coley didn't score a ton this year as a result of pretty much probably maybe that run out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he probably was on for making one. But, uh, yeah, just another crazy part of a crazy year. No kidding. But I'll tell you what, this might actually not be the most alarming part of this for India, which brings me to a first of a few questions. So first one, what was worse for you, the batting performance or the fielding performance? Wow. Yeah, well, there's three phases to cricket and people often forget about the fielding. I mean, maybe it was the fielding. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's close. You can make a good case for both. I mean, India actually lost 16 for 92 if wow. you go back to the first innings. Yeah. But yeah, I, look, I think the batting was almost a perfect storm. Like line and length, as we talked about, was utter perfection. How many catches were dropped, though, in the fielding? I mean, as we mentioned, Labashain was dropped three times early. Payne was dropped on 26 and made 73. They probably cost themselves 70 or 80 runs just with those two guys in the first innings. And then Australia have to chase maybe 170, which isn't quite as easy psychologically, even with that collapse. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. Mm, sure is. Now, before the match, I heard Joe Burns referred to as a Stephen Bradbury selection, which when you look at the second <laughs> innings, probably couldn't be more apt. His success was kind of down to India pretty much falling down and no pressure being put on him. And obviously, I put a lot more weight on the first innings because it was all to play for then. Does yeah, the 50 fair. not out he made? And, and to put into perspective the fielding, as you said, he had his, his shot parried over the, the fine leg boundary for six to bring up his 50. Does that guarantee he starts the next test if Pekovsky can't get up in time? If Bukowski can't get up in time, you've got to stick with the incumbent. They clearly stuck with the incumbent when he was in bad form, so I think they will again. But absolutely, if we can have Warner and Bukowski in the second test, in the Boxing Day test, then absolutely I think we should. What do you make of people talking about Joe Burns and actually wanting him to fail? Uh, I may have been guilty of that myself, <laughs> but, that, but that was pushing my own agenda because I didn't feel like he should have been picked for this test. No, look, it's it's kind of hard. I mean, you you want Aussies to do well. 
I, I just, I still feel like it was the wrong choice. And I, I feel like Harris should have got the nod though. So yeah, as I say, that that's probably me pushing my own agenda, as I said, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's pretty un-Australian, isn't it? We're probably, uh, probably off the mark doing that. <laughs> and, you know, Wade did all right at the top there too. So we've got Wade as a potential stopgap in future as well. True. Now the next question, how in the shit would Ajinka Rahane be with Coley? Oh, mate. He will be in the doghouse for a long time. That's a long flight home that Coley can stew on that run out. And it wasn't even just the run out. It was also him burning a review on something that was pitching middle and hitting middle. Like Shane Watson would have been blushing on that one. (laughs) Yeah, Stewie, not a great test for Rahane, it's got to be said. Nope, not at all. So we've talked about Joe Burns for the Aussies, Stewie. But India have some selection nightmares now too. Obviously, Coley's going home for the birth of his daughter. Who do you bring in? Well, for Coley, I mean... (laughs) Look, if Rohit Sharma's available, you'd probably pick him. Pretty decent batsman. For me, there's a few other changes you would make. Rishabh Pant obviously has to come in for Saha. Better gloveman, better batsman. So that's that's a no-brainer for me. Shubman Gill probably has to come in for Prithvi, Prithvi Shaw. Four runs in two innings with a flawed front foot technique, undoing in both innings. Yeah, not good. Not good, no. And you probably have to bring in Ishant Sharma if he's available for Shami as well, if he's not healthy. I mean, took that really nasty shot on the arm. We don't know if it's broken yet. but Oh, um, he couldn't bat on. So yeah. with a really quick turnaround till the Boxing Day test, I suspect that he's in he's in trouble. No, I mean, obviously all of this just comes down to whether all of these players are available and healthy, but I mean, fuck, even if they're not healthy, it's still going to be better than some of the stuff they served up. Oh, it could be a pretty painful end to the tour for the Indians, but Hey, there's a reason they play the games and we'll see very soon in that boxing day test starting later this week. True. True. I've just got one more quick one to, uh, to run past you. What the fuck was up with Shane Warne's hat, by the way? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe the advanced hair is not working as well as it used to, Stewie. Well, that's funnily enough what I've got written here. I mean, he's an ambassador for advanced hair, so why is he not showing off those beautiful locks? I, I don't understand. And with the suit and tie that he had on, he looked like Angus Young. <laughs> he did look a bit funny, didn't he? Oh, yeah. dear. I, it's it's kind of like people who bowl with their cap on. It just doesn't look right. It's only okay if you're a spinner. Oh, even then. Oh, I still think it looks <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, great result for the Aussies. Bring on the Boxing Day test. Absolutely. Who's been naughty and who has been nice? We want presents. For one of our final segments of the year, we thought we'd do a bit of a Christmas segment and think about the year in sport and who's been naughty and who's been nice. This is, of course, a follow-on from way back in episode eight when we did Christmas in July. For example, we offered Nick Kyrgios a easy draw at the US Open, but he didn't end up playing, so that was no good. Yeah, he returned that one, unfortunately. But hey, we gave LeBron James a championship for encouraging the populace of NBA players to return. So so that was nice of us, wasn't it? That's was a that ma- massive tick from us. We'll, we'll yeah. claim half of that, really. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So we won't go through all of those again because a couple of names are appearing again. But let's start with the naughty pile, Stewie. We've got to start with the naughties, don't we? We do. And it is a repeat offender, I dare say. So Novak Djokovic has reared his ugly head once again. Last time it was for COVID crimes and we gave him a CD of Ain't No Party Killed Nobody as well as the Pete Evans machine uh, for co- for all COVID deniers. Oh, Petey's doing well, isn't he? Oh, he is. He is. They're not cheap. Now, Novak was a naughty boy because after we recorded that one, he did more things. This time at the US Open, of course, he hit that Lions judge in the throat. So I was thinking for the crime of hitting the Lions judge in the throat at the US Open, Stewie, we could maybe get him a totem tennis set so he could keep his ball on a string. <laughs> That's, that's a good idea. I can probably do you one better, though. Oh, please do. What about Billie Jean King's eye coach? 
love it. It's a training aid that will help you, quote, hit the sweet spot consistently. <laughs> Brilliant. Yep. All right. Oh, he's got to get that for sure. And I'll tell you what, it's still better than Margaret Court's side eye of judgments. <laughs> sure is. Oh, it sure is. Oh, he's been oh, he's a, he's a Novak. Yeah, he's, he's, he's done all right, though, with the gifts this year. We have. We've given him a lot of gifts for being naughty. Now, I will need to be serious for a second, Stewie, if I may. I'll allow it for a few seconds. Thank you. Now, any dickhead that lights fires in the bush for fun are definitely naughty. That is no laughing matter. Even though it was less than 12 months ago, in a weird way, it seems like a distant memory when we think about the bushfires that ravished Australia earlier in the year. And what I actually forgot until I did a bit of research for this is that they even affected sporting events like the Australian Open. Because the smoke was travelling vast distances... The players were actually affected by it, playing in the outdoor courts, obviously. So you're definitely naughty if you light a fire. Do not do it. It's not good for anyone. If you've got idle hands, maybe maybe you're the person that needs the totem tennis. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Next time you, you pull out a jiffy firelighter, maybe pull out the totem tennis racket instead. There you go. There you go. But don't do it seriously. You're a dickhead. No, you're... definitely. No, we don't like that. Who, who else has been naughty, Stewie? Well, Patrick Reed has definitely been naughty this year. We oh, yes, uh, go all the way back. Yeah, we go back to the US Open where he was basically seen on camera pushing the grass down around the, the fringe of the green to try and make his chip shot a little bit easier. So mm. what, what should we get him? Well, I was thinking, Stewie, maybe we get him a $50 voucher for Jim's mowing, seeing as he keeps his hands on the grass. Maybe someone else should touch the grass for him for once. Probably <laughs> a fair call. Who else has been naughty, Nate? Well, Stewie, the Australian women's team for the FAI Women's World Gliding Championships. What the hell is gliding? Well, it's a sport we haven't talked about before. It's kind of unpowered planes that glide through the air without motors. Ah, right, of course. That makes sense. Yeah, not you know, not something we know a hell of a lot about. But the Federation Aeronautique Internationale has been around since 1905. So it has been a sport that's been around for quite some time. So during the 2020 Women's World Gliding Championships at Lake Keep It, way back at the start of the year in January. Basically, Stewie, the Aussie team captain Terry Cubley was charged with unsporting behaviour because he used an undocumented backdoor to the official tracking system that meant that the team could bypass a 15-minute delay. And as we know, in anything to do with time, 15 minutes can be the difference between winning and losing. Cubley was charged with unsporting behaviour by accessing the official tracking system to bypass the mandatory 15-minute delay, as I mentioned. And in doing so, he forwarded the real-time competitors' positions to his team, so he gained a tactical advantage. But not one of them received a disqualification. So, Stewie, I think we need to give him a present because they didn't get a disqualification. But it can't be too good a present. What do we give them? Oh, they can have one of those little 15-minute sandglass timers. <laughs> so they forever uh, know how long 15 minutes is. Yeah. I can't believe they got away with that without yeah, being know, disqualified. Right? Oh, it's like, basically gliding sandpaper gate. That's, yeah, that's worse, I think. Oh, it is. Frankly. It is. It is worse. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. No, as Aussies, we're, we're ashamed of this shit. They shouldn't be cheating. At least with sandpaper gate, we didn't win. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. No, so, no, this is terrible. It really is. Who else have we got, Stewie? Who else has been naughty? Uh, we've got Sydney Stack, oh, unfortunately. Sydney Stack, repeat offender. Sydney Stack, the, uh, the Richmond Tiger. He has uh, unfortunately been a naughty boy. He sure has. Reaching COVID protocols not once, but twice. Yes. Now, this is a, a fairly serious one because there's a potential he might end up serving some jail time for this one. Um, it was out at a party just the other weekend, actually, in, in Perth and got involved in a big punch-up and, and all of that when he should have been quarantining. So 
Um, yeah, not a particularly smart decision from him. No. It's probably cost him his AFL career, to be honest. So well, it's possible. Been a, a very naughty boy, unfortunately, has missed the stack. So, mm. so what, what should we get him? Um, I don't know. He's not very good at staying, is he? We could tie in a popular Christmas present with a teaching moment here, Stewie. Why don't we get Sydney Stack a puppy so he can learn the importance of staying while he teaches the dog how to stay? Oh, that's good. Who's next on the list? Well, Stewie, it's one of my favourite uh, people to say a naughty. It's Tom Brady. Oh, there's a shock. Yes, Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady. He's had his fair share of controversy in his career. People seem to forget about it. He's a bit Teflon, actually. Teflon Tom Brady. But two of his team's first four losses, he refused to shake the opposition quarterback's hand. It's not good enough. Bad sportsmanship. And he's won a lot of games, too. He doesn't lose very often. So he's been a naughty boy. Maybe he was just scared of COVID. I don't think that's what it was. So the question is, Stewie, what do we get him? Well, I mean, he smashed his phone during the flight gate, didn't he? He did. He sure did. So maybe we could get him a brand new Samsung, courtesy of old St. Nick Natanui. Old St. Nick Natanui. He gave Riley O'Brien one. He can come back. That's a great idea. He can come back, although he may not be able to enter the... Well, he could enter the States, but he just wouldn't be allowed back into into Perth. So well, no, he'll maybe, just, maybe... No, he'll fly with somewhere. the reindeers. He'll fly over oh, with the reindeer. Oh, of course, he can bypass customs. Yeah, no, Santa's, Santa is not confined to COVID protocol. All right, well, thank God for that. Yeah. Because we kind of we kind of need him to be back in, in the ruck. So. <laughs> Eagles fans do, yeah. Yes, yes, we do. So, but no, he can, uh, he can have himself a brand new Samsung, definitely. Yeah, as long as he doesn't get anywhere near the Australian bush and cause more fires with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Now, we've got one more on the naughty list, Dewey, but it's it's quite a big group. <laughs> it's a fairly big group of people. Yeah, it's probably not quite the 1.35 billion people, but uh, there's, a, there's a fair few Indian fans out there who are blaming Anushka Sharma, the wife of Virat Kohli, for India's loss in the first test over the weekend. Which is outrageous. Yeah, so there was quite a... Yeah, there's quite a few people you'd blame before her, yeah. i.e. Oh. their entire batting lineup. Uh, their fielding coach, yeah, yep. So I, I don't really think she's to blame for that, but a lot of people saying that it's her fault for pressuring Virat to come home early and be there for the, the birth of their child and his mind wasn't on the game and all that sort of stuff. Ridiculous. Wouldn't have made a scrap of difference. No, not at all. So, it's outrageous. But I reckon we've got a pretty good present for him, don't we? We do, we do, we do. We're going to give each and every one of those fans signed copies of Anushka's critically acclaimed cult-followed film When Harry Met Sigel from 2017. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funnier the more I hear it. <laughs> Oh, dear. Oh, my God, it's on Netflix! <laughs> well, there you go. There's some Christmas viewing, Shui. When Harry met Sigel. Oh, oh bro, this is, this is my yep. This is my Christmas viewing right here. Forget That's the second it. test. I'm watching this. Yep, forget the crown. Forget all the other popular, the Queen's Gambit. The, the one to watch is when Harry met Sigel. A philandering tour guide in Europe begins to develop feelings for one of his clients while helping her search for her lost engagement ring. <sighs> Oh, there you go. And maybe the sequel can be about uh, when she's pregnant and and he needs to come back from his workplace. (laughs) When Sijal ruins the second test. (laughs) So we'll move on to the nicest, Stewie. Now, this individual was actually on our naughty list in July, so... They've had a bit of a turnaround, a retribution, as it were. Yes, it's Collingwood president, soon to be ex-president, Eddie Maguire. Yes, So we've, right. we've definitely put him on the nice list now because he's finally heard all of the, the grumblings from all of us. and He's decided he's going to step down as Collingwood president at the end of the season 
No which more is conflict great. of interest. That's right. Yeah, it is great. No, no more hypocrite Eddie, which I think is brilliant. Amen. What should we give him? What should we give this guy? Well, Stewie, there's only one thing we can give him. The 2021 Collingwood Magpies calendar with Adam Trelaw front and centre. <laughs> I have seen this calendar. It looks like Adam Trelaw's ready to rip his jersey off and it's like he's yelling, no, at the camera like, I'm not going to be a magpie by this time next week. It's almost like he knew that they'd be released prematurely before yep. the trade period. <laughs> so true. Oh, what a cracking gift. Very good. Perfect. Who's next? Who's next? Well, another bit of a serious one here. We need to say Michael Holding was very nice. He gave an impassioned speech during a rain delay. I think it was the England-Pakistan, one of the tests there. A fantastic speech about Black Lives Matter. Uh, as I mentioned, very impassioned, very inspiring. I, I strongly encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to go and watch it on YouTube. Um, he makes some really important and, and, and poignant points. The question is, Joey, what do we give him? Honestly, give this man the keys to the world. <laughs> I won't argue with that. We like love he's le- legit yep. one of the one of the greatest human beings to walk this planet. I, I would happily give him the keys to the world. Good on you, Mikey Holding. Hopefully, the world is heading in the right direction. Now, next, Joey. Next, we have someone who, well, perhaps saved basketball in a sense. We've we've given one to someone else who saved basketball, but this person was pretty important too. Yeah, look, Adam Silver, pretty important figure in the world of the NBA. We've kind of got to give him a, a spot in the nice category for obviously all the amazing stuff that he was able to do as, as part of the solution for the NBA and creating the bubble, facilitating that and allowing that to be such an amazing spectacle. And what, what do you give him? Well, I, and I think, look, I think we've got to focus on the bubble. You know, he arguably did it better than Major League Soccer, baseball, even the NFL, other sports that were competing. So given we're bubble focused, I think it's only appropriate we give him some bubble bath. How about a bit of Mr. Matey for Adam Silver? Oh, no, Sailor Matey. Sailor Matey. <laughs> okay. We'll give him some Sailor Matey. A well-deserved. We've got another somewhat serious one next night. Yes, we do. We do. And it's been hard to work out who actually invented it. But whoever invented the F1 Halo device that saved the life of Romain Grosjean, again, incredibly chilling footage if you get a chance to see it. It's astonishing he survived. They definitely deserve a present. The question is, what do we give them? I mean, it's it's obvious. It's got to be a copy of Marion and Romain Grosjean's book, Cuisine et Confidences. <laughs> sure. Yep, which I, which I believe roughly translates to surviving horrific crashes. Uh, I think it might be cuisine with confidence, but close. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't speak Russian, so. <laughs> uh, the final people to make our nice list. Well, it's probably one of the most unlikely pairings you could imagine in the world of sport. <laughs> Virat Kohli and Steve Smith. Yes. One of the really great things about the IPL in recent years is it's allowed some of these relationships to be mended between the Indian and Australian cricket teams. And so many of the Aussie players are over there playing and mingling with, with yes. so many of the Indian players. And, and we've actually seen in recent times, yeah, Coley and Smith being able to sit down and break bread and be able to say, you know, we want to move this game forward without the sledging and without you know, the banter's okay, but we don't want the, the really harsh sledging anymore. And yeah. it's absolutely the best way to possibly round out a nice list is with these two. The big question is, what do you get these two? Well, you mentioned breaking bread, Stewie. Let's stick with that theme. How about those BFF bracelets that break so they have half each? Aww. Virat Kohli and Steve Smith, best friends forever. I hope so. <laughs> uh, well, Stewie... 
you haven't been very naughty. You've been very nice. I've had a great year with you. I've been a little bit naughty. What you do in your own time, Shui, is, is your own business. No, tax evasion. Oh, well, well, it, well, that's what I was talking about too. But anyway, Shui, <laughs> I think, well, what else is there to say? But Merry Christmas from the Sport Blokes. Merry Christmas indeed. I want presents. And now, this week in sport history. December 21st, 1891, the first game of basketball based on the rules created by Canadian Dr. James Naismith was played by 18 students at a YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts. The game ended up being nine on nine with no dribbling taking place and a jump ball after every successful basket. So named because the original hoops were peach baskets. So very different to today's game, of course. Naismith later coached nine seasons at Kansas for a 55 and 60 record, ironically making the inventor of the game the only coach in the Kansas Jayhawks history with a losing record. Yeah, I think he's coaching Kentucky right now, isn't he? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, Stuart, it'll, yeah. it'll be a long time before Coach Cal dips below 500, I can tell you that much. December 21st, 1981, in NCAA basketball, the Cincinnati Bearcats defeat the Bradley Braves 75-73 to in a record seven overtimes. Yikes. Now, Bobby Austin of Cincinnati and Donald Reese of Bradley both played 73 of the 75 minutes, a record that still also stands, unsurprisingly. <laughs> of course. This was before the three-point shot or the shot clock, so as the game went on longer, it became less of a spectacle with teams holding the ball for minutes at a time to the point where whoever won the tip at the start of an overtime was taking the last shot to win it. The teams combined for just 22 points across seven overtimes, including a 0-0 third overtime period. Ugh. Eventually, Doug Schlomer hit a 15-footer with one second left in the seventh overtime to win it. Mercilessly for everyone on the court, it was over. December 22, 1950, saw the first time a test was played at the MCG on Boxing Day with an Ashes test against the old enemy. Play happened on the 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 26th and 27th with players given a Christmas day to drink and be merry. Although the first official Boxing Day test played at the G was in 1968-69 between the West Indies and Australia. Interestingly, though, the first ever Boxing Day test was actually played at the Old Wanderers in Johannesburg in 1913 between England and South Africa. Yes, the South Africans also have a Boxing Day test that people often forget about. December 22nd, 1917, in the NHL's first official week of play, three Toronto Arenas players score a hat-trick in the same game, oh, with Corb Denany, Reg Noble and Harry Meeking each scoring three in an 11-4 hammering of the Ottawa Senators. Christmas Day 1984, New York Knicks' Bernard King scored a Christmas Day record of 60 points, but the Knicks fell to the Nets 120-114. Will Chamberlain sits second on the list with 59 points to go with a Christmas Day record of 36 rebounds, also in a loss, as this time the Philadelphia Warriors fell to the Knicks. It was also reported that in a live national television game on Christmas Day in 1968, Chamberlain blocked what would have been an all-time record 23 shots against the Phoenix Suns, but this was before blocks were an official stat, so we'll never know for sure. And it's hard to know how many of those would have been goaltending as well. So. <laughs> yes, he notoriously did that. It's still an amazing, amazing effort. And December 25th, 1994, Santa Claus joins the Milwaukee Bucks and ably assisted by Donner and Blitzen scores 176 points to defeat the LA Clippers, who had been naughty boys that year. <laughs> Haven't they always been naughty boys? Maybe. Blitzen's always had such a great handle too. Oh, such a great handle. <laughs> yeah, he was the original Rain Man. <laughs> uh, spectacular. This week in sport history. Whatever James wants. It's funny how three simple words can completely derail an NBA franchise, isn't it? 
Hmm. I mean, you could take maybe the to South Beach portion of LeBron's decision to go to Miami in 2010, but less than six years later, he not only came back, but he delivered Cleveland their first major sporting championship since 1964. Maybe any of the three words from the Magic Johnson HIV announcement in late 1991, Hmm. but the Lakers have won six championships in the 29 seasons since then, and they lost in the finals a couple more times, and they're favorites to win it again this year. So they're doing okay. I don't know, Stuart, maybe the phrase, the last dance as well. <laughs> true, true. Well, it certainly uh, certainly derailed Michael Jordan's reputation a little bit. I'm not sure about the, the Bulls franchise. They're already struggling. but Bulls fans will never forgive Krauss and Reinsdorf for that. And let's face it, they haven't done a hell of a lot since, apart from Derek Rose, for that flash in the pan. True. But look, it's well documented that a lot of players abuse their power. It's definitely gone too far, though. The last few weeks of the James Harden show probably exemplifies that better than anything. Mm. From the trade demands, the off-court antics, the expectation is that what he says goes and the Rockets will have to respect that. Mm. But to get that kind of respect, you need to show respect back. LeBron gets that sort of treatment wherever he plays, but he shows up to training camps on time. He doesn't show up about 20 pounds overweight. (laughs) He's not seen at strip clubs, not wearing a mask in the middle of a pandemic. He organizes team dinners. He integrates guys into the team. He's for all intents and purposes, a great guy. Also won a handful of championships too, by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess all of that doesn't apply for Harden, unfortunately. Look, from what I've seen, the power has well and truly gone to Harden's head. From choosing his star teammates, Dwight Howard, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, just to name a few, to deciding the practice schedule. Like if Harden felt like going to Vegas for a day, which apparently happens quite a bit, then he'd go and the team wouldn't practice. Maybe to go visit Lemon Pepper Lou, Stewie. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the Lemon Pepper Lou might be in Atlanta, but I mean... Yeah, there's two clubs the, in Vegas too. Probably worth the trip though. I mean, even down to the travel schedule... But it's a two-way street. This whole we'll give him an inch, he'll take a mile saying exists for a reason. A lot of people would probably do the same thing, but it doesn't make it right. Mm. So a large part of this blame has to go to the Rockets organization. Like, I know it's hard. You have to treat your star players well or they walk. But such is the power that these players have nowadays. Someone like Giannis Antetokounmpo is a perfect example. Even in a small market, you can keep these guys in town without giving them the keys to it. You can't help but wonder, though, Stewie, the fact that he's European and not a local might have meant that he was more inclined to stay in Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could look back to guys like Dirk Nowitzki. I mean, I know Dallas isn't exactly a a small market town, but it's not New York or LA. Manu Ginobili comes to mind as well. Certainly uh, an overseas guy. Uh, Tony Parker, you know, played all but one season in San Antonio as well. Kobe Bryant was technically (laughs) from Italy, I guess. Yeah, well, that's true. So, no, I I certainly, I get what you're saying there. But we've spoken previously about the trade demands. Basically, you'll need to send me to Brooklyn or maybe Philly or Miami or Milwaukee. The reality is that no, no, they fucking don't. No, they don't. The problem for Harden is that he still has a couple of years left on his contract. So he's got no leverage. He can't just walk because he's under contract and right in his prime. So Houston's finally done the one thing that they should have been prepared to do over the past few years. They told him no. If the best offer comes from Indiana or Sacramento or Memphis, that's where he's going, period. Because the Rockets are the ones paying him, so they should reserve the right to. Well, again, Stewie, he hasn't won anything. And I hate to say, if you're not a part of the solution, maybe you're a part of the problem. You rattled off a lot of players he brought in to try and help, and they didn't win anything. And I didn't even mention Jeremy Lin back when he was actually playing pretty well. So, Mm. yeah, you got a good point there. So what did Harden do when they said no? He threw his toys out of the cot. As I mentioned before, he rocked up late to training camp, well out of shape after partying with the most aptly named rapper for him to be associated with, Lil Baby. (laughs) 
he completely shunned COVID protocols while he was away as well. He clearly doesn't care what the Rockets think. They need to do what he wants, and that's that. And all of this from a guy who, to quote you, Nate, hasn't won shit. Yeah. Like, he's been in the conference finals in Houston twice, and of those, 2018 was the only year they looked like winning before Chris Paul's hamstring went. So as good as he is, someone like Jimmy Butler is almost more desirable given he led the Heat to the finals last year. Yeah, I agree with that, Stewie. He's a big reason why I call them the regular season Rockets. So I guess the question is, where are we with this knife? Like, how far past too far are we? Well, it is really concerning, isn't it? So there was a really interesting piece. I can't remember if it was the Bill Simmons podcast or if it was him talking with uh, the blokes on the mismatch. But he went through a really interesting timeline of players demanding trades. So Wilt in 68, Earl Monroe in 72, Kareem in 75, who people forget is that he actually wanted to go to New York, but they couldn't manage a deal. And so he ended up at the Lakers instead. And so we all know how that all, all turned out. Dr. J, Bill Walton, Moses Malone, Barkley, Danny Ferry. Hakeem requested a trade in 92, which I didn't know previously, or I'd certainly forgotten. Mm. Um, he dubbed the current crop as the too much too soon era. This was from 98 to 04. So Chris Webber, Lonzo Mourning, Dennis Rodman, Jason Kidd, Tim Hardaway, Sean Kemp, Scotty Pippen, which comes up in the last dance, Stephen Marbury, Steve Francis. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So now we're in the unhappy NBA start era where they think they can just piss off after five minutes, even if they sign a big contract and are committed to the team. Can we just go back a minute? Did you just lump Danny Ferry in with that that pile of superstars? Uh, well, Bill Simmons lumped Danny Ferry in with that pile of superstars, and it has to be said uh, you're, he had... You're, you're, you're direct quoting, okay, fair enough. Uh, also, it has to be said he had a very good college career, so some thought he might have been the second coming of Larry Bird. It didn't turn out that way, but yeah. I think he was a number two pick, if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly, yeah, of, yeah. Coming out oh, of Duke. But, highly touted. Um, but no, he definitely doesn't belong in that, in that list. No, not in, not with oh, the power so of hindsight, Stewie. Not with the power of hindsight. No. In fact, I think the best thing I can remember from Danny Ferry was him nearly getting punched in the back of the head by Marcus Camby <laughs> when he was playing for the Spurs and him actually taking, taking out Van Gundy. Oh, yes. Deary, mate. Danny Ferry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh dear. Now look, let's wrap this up. Look, we're in 2020. It's the year of COVID. So many people have lost their jobs. So many people have lost their lives. Yet you've got this privilege of getting to play a game, a game you love, and you get paid $41 million to do so. And not to mention you turn down a $50 million per season deal too with the Rockets. Yep. Leave your privilege at the door. Be thankful the league lets you do what you do and make sure the only rule you're breaking this season is rule 10, section 13B. A player may take two steps in shooting the ball. Big traveler. <laughs> no chance of that. All right, Stewie, you know what that music means. What are you amped for? It's hard to know what to be most excited for, really. The Aussies in India test series is in full swing. The big bash is coming along nicely, but it has to be the NBA opening night for me. NBA's probably picked two of the best narratives they could have for the start of the new season. And there's a ton of awesome looking games the following day. You've got Milwaukee at Boston, you've got Utah at Portland, and you've got Dallas at Phoenix, which I'm really excited for. Oh, yeah. How about yourself, Nate? Well, Stewie, Boxing Day is my Christmas. We've got the Boxing Day test. We've got the NBA Christmas Day games, because obviously the time delay. And then we've also got the NFL too. What a smorgasbord. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex.